Our first passage is found in Hebrews chapter 2. We'll be reading um, actually verse 8. Um, I mean verse 5 through 18. If you'll follow along with me. Beginning in Hebrews chapter 2 verse 5. For he did not subject to angels the world to come concerning which we are speaking. But one has testified somewhere saying, What is man that you remember him? Or the son of man that you are concerned about him? You have made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor and have appointed him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. For in subjecting all things to him, you left nothing that is not subject to him. But now we do not yet see all things subjected to him. But we do see him who has made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting for him for whom all are all things and through whom are all things in bringing many sons to glory to protect the offer of their salvation through sufferings. For both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from one Father, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will proclaim your name to my brethren. In the midst of the congregation I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children whom God has given me. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. For assuredly, he does not give help to angels, but he gives help to the descendant of Abraham. Therefore, he, may, he had been made, uh, excuse me, he had to be made like his brethren in all things so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. Amen. Our gospel reading is found in Luke chapter 1, and we'll be reading verses 8 through 23. Of course, the setting here is a time when Zacharias is being led into the temple, and uh, he has a vision of an angel while he's offering incense. Listen here to God's word. Now it happened that while he, Zacharias, were, was performing his priestly service before God in the appointed order of his division, according to the custom of the priestly office, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were in prayer outside at the hour of the incense offering. And an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing to the right of the altar of incense. Zacharias was troubled when he saw the angel, and fear gripped him. And the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your petition has been heard. 
and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you will give him the name John. You will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord, and he will drink no wine or liquor, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the sons of Israel back to the Lord their God. It is he who will go as a forerunner before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous, so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Zacharias said to the angel, How will I know this for certain? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered and said to him, I am Gabriel, who stands in the presence of God, and I have been uh, sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you shall be silent and unable to speak until the day when these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled at their proper time. And the people were waiting for Zacharias and were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when the days of his priestly service were ended, he went back home. Amen. Our primary text for today is Philippians chapter 1, and we'll be reading verses 27 through 30. Listen here to God's word. Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel. In no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you, and that too from God. For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, experiencing the same conflict which you have saw in me, and now here to be in me. Amen. This time I'd like to ask you to bow your heads and silently meditate upon God's Word that we've read this morning. Heavenly Father, we come in Jesus' name, that name that is above every name, that by the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that He is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We rejoice that we can assemble freely in this land, We are so grateful that we can, from our hearts, sing your praises. That acknowledge, Lord, not only that you are the Lord God, the Almighty, but you are our Redeemer. We rejoice that we can assemble as the people of God, filled with your Holy Spirit. And allow that spirit, Lord, to work mightily in each heart and life today. Taking the words of God 
and feeding our souls and transforming our minds so that we would be more and more conformed to the image of your Son. Bless your word today, Lord. Spirit of God, move among us. May Jesus Christ be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen. When I mentioned to you the phrase rules of engagement, what comes to your mind? First of all, for you young people, I'm not talking about some frivolous animated video game that many of our young people have been engaged in. No, I'm, I'm referring to when I mention rules of engagement, I'm referring to things of real life. And the rules of engagement can apply to something as simple as a sports game where there's contact between opposing teams. It can also refer to the commitment that a man and a woman makes they live by the engagement that they vow to keep until the wedding time. But it can actually also mean the rules of engagement that happen during military warfare and conflict between opposing forces. These types of rules of engagement deal with one's conduct. It is human-focused. It is life-changing contact. Whether it pertains to you and the opposing team player, or you and your uh, fiancé that you're being engaged to, or if you or, and a hostile force are engaged in battle. My hope is that you see that these rules of engagement are not the same in all of these spheres of contact. And if you think they are, maybe you ought to see me later. No. Recently, I was talking to my son who was, and as all Marines are, still is a United States Marine. Um, he's not in active duty, but once a Marine, always a Marine. And I was asking him about the rules of engagement as they pertain to him in his sphere of military service. And one of the things he said to me, which just rang in my heart, was this. The rules of engagement are always to explain, if you will, what amount of force you're permitted to be engaged in. And there are several factors that come into play with the rules of engagement militarily. First, there are political concerns that have to be considered. 
there are military purposes that are outlined in those rules of engagement. There are legal matters when you're dealing with other countries that have to be considered. In fact, in one of their official manuals, they actually describe the rules of engagement this way, to provide implementation, guidance, and the applications of force for mission accomplishment, and to ensure the proper exercise of the inherent right of self-defense. The rules of engagement set guidelines, if you will, on how a team player performs on the field, or how the couple, a man and a woman, and we have to define that these days, is supposed to behave before their marriage vows are taken. It's also how a military warrior conducts himself or herself against a hostile force in the theater of war. Well, the Apostle Paul, in his letter here, has already been describing for us that he is a prisoner at Rome. But this imprisonment has caused the advancement of the gospel in Rome in a way that it would not otherwise. And he rejoices about it and will rejoice about the progress of the gospel. And he's told the, how the believers in Rome be, have greater boldness, if you will, to speak for Christ. And how even the Philippian believers who are receiving this letter are being praised because through their prayers and with the help of the Holy Spirit, it will cause his deliverance so that he can be bearing more fruit for God. So that the gospel can continue to go forth and that believers can continue to be built up as he even refers to this church. And it's all for the cause of the glory of God for the progress of the gospel, for the building up of the body of Christ. And it's at this time of his letter that Paul is giving this church, and I believe God is giving us today, the rules of engagement in the world in which we live. And he says, whether I'm with you or absent from you, these are the rules of engagement. We read them this morning. In verses 27 and 28, he says, Only conduct yourselves in a matter worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear that you are, first, standing firm in one spirit and in one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel in no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you, and that too from God. You see, all of us as believers 
I believe, who are seeking to live for God have certain rules of engagement. They have certain conduct that we're supposed to be living by. It's a code of conduct that is supposed to go across the board, across uh, nations, across time, across even uh, circumstances of life, that these are things that we ought to be living by as believers in Christ. One of my favorite people in history, who is actually internationally known as an artist, a philosopher, and a public icon is, you guessed it, John Wayne. (laughs) And this is what John Wayne said. A man's got to have a code, a creed to live by. Isn't that a great word? I had that plaque in my office. It was given to me by my daughter who knows that I'm a John Wayne fan. And it's true. It's true for us as Christians today that we should be living by the code of conduct that God has set up for us. You can put that down. I don't want to have any converts here to John Wayne. And what Paul is getting at in these two verses is that our conduct is such that we're living worthily of the gospel of Christ in hostile territory, in a hostile world. That's what Paul was getting at for these believers in the first century. And we need to get it today that we are to live worthily of the gospel of Jesus Christ. What does that look like? How are we supposed to live worthily of the gospel of Christ? Well, one thing becomes very apparent, and that is that we are to be people who proclaim the gospel of Christ both by the way we conduct our lives, but also by what we say. The other thing that he says in these verses is that we need to stand firm. We need to stand united in the gospel cause as we're living in this world. There is no greater cause that we can align ourselves to than fighting for the souls of men and women and children who need Jesus Christ as their Savior and their Lord. There is no greater cause that you as parents can be enrolled in than the cause of raising up your children in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. There is no greater cause that you and I can live by to spread the light and salt of the gospel in the areas of influence that God has placed us in. And we are to stand firm as the people of God in doing this very thing. Stand firm, united. He says, striving together for the faith 
of the gospel. As you know, in the rules of engagement in warfare, there is always opponents. And Paul said in this passage that we should in no way be alarmed by the opponents. The opponents can come both from within as well as from without. And all of us have probably experienced both types of folks entering into our lives, both from within as well as from without. We are to stand in one spirit, in harmony with one another for the cause of the gospel of Christ. And we are to have one mind, solidly placing our faith in Jesus Christ and the gospel of Christ so that others might see and understand that we live for him. There are so many examples where we can see this both in the Old Testament as well as in the New Testament. I just wanted to point one out from the Old Testament. There was a young king that was raised up in Judah. His name was Josiah. And Josiah was a man who stood for the Lord. In fact, it says in 2 Kings chapter 22, verse 2, that he did right in the sight of the Lord and walked in all the ways of his father David. Nor did he turn aside to the right nor to the left. This brings me to the third point that Paul is making in these two verses, and that is that we should be undaunted by the opposition. We need to know that greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. We need to know that the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but are mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. We need to know that we have spiritual armament to put on the armor of God and stand firm. You see, Paul is telling this church, and I believe he's telling us today, that we need to live worthy of the gospel of Christ, conducting ourselves and all of our affairs in this life as citizens of the kingdom of heaven. And I think more so today than ever before, we need Christians with spiritual courage, with backbone. Christians, whether they be young or they be old, whose first and foremost loyalty is to the Lord Jesus Christ. We need to be living like John the Baptist was called to live, a forerunner of Christ, who was indwelt and filled with the Holy Spirit, who was making ready a people prepared for the Lord. 
and not be like his father, who didn't believe Gabriel when he came and spoke to him about it. Another Old Testament figure that always has been an inspiration to me, one that you probably have a plaque in your home. At the end of his life, after his commitment to the Lord, in front of all the people of Israel, he said this, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Well, what does that look like today for you and for me as believers in Christ? Let me give you some suggestions. It means that we conduct our social and business dealings in a righteous way. That we are loving and that we are truthful and that we are respectful and impartial in our treatment of others and of one another. In other words, there's no place for careless conduct for a believer. No place for carelessness. It means that we honor and defend God's ordained institutions as he has them outlined in the Word of God. The institution of the church, of marriage, of family, of the government being biblically advised and in a Christ-honoring manner. In other words, there's no exchange of the moral ethics that God has established in His Word for us as believers. If we're living by this code of conduct, it should not be allowed. It means that we stand firm on the biblical principles that are outlined in God's Word against those that are perpetrators, if you will, or antagonists who want to promote evil, injustice, and rebellion against God, His church, His truth, and His God-given authorities. There should be no compromise of these godly principles. They should never be accepted. But we need to know, beloved, that if we are living this way by these rules of engagement that God has outlined in, our, in His Word, we need to know and remember that there will be suffering for Christ's sake. That's what he gets into in verses 29 and 30. For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me and now here to be in me. You see, Paul is telling the church 
that as they are living in tension with this fallen world, that they need to know that they have been granted, it has been privileged to them, not only to believe on Jesus, but also they have the high privilege of suffering for his sake. And we see many examples throughout the New Testament. Even in the early part of the church, in Acts chapter 5, when Peter and the others are sharing the gospel and how they're suffering from it by their own countrymen. And as they leave the Sanhedrin after being beaten, they say in verse 41, so they went out of their way from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. You see, they understood what the writer of the Hebrews was talking about there in Hebrews chapter 2. That the reason that they could suffer for Jesus' sake is because Jesus has suffered for their sake. And that he can come to their aid, as it says there in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 18. Jesus is our merciful and faithful high priest. He is able to come to our aid as we live by this code of conduct. Paul's mentioned here of experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me and now here to be in me is, of course, referring back to Acts chapter 16 when the church was first started. They saw the conflict. They saw what, what it meant to live by this code of conduct for the apostle Paul as he proclaimed Christ. And they now have heard through the letter that was delivered by Epaphroditus about the suffering that he was enduring as a prisoner of Rome. Even our Lord Jesus told his disciples that the people in this world will hate them as they hate him. And Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, Chapter 5, verses 11 through 12. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Paul wants to remind us that as we as believers in Christ are indeed in this spiritual conflict together. As we live and as we are witnesses of Christ's gospel in this world, we all are in it together. We are, as Paul said, ambassadors for Christ. As Paul even reminded young Timothy in his final letter, in chapter 3, verse 12, he said, Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. 
But he also said in Romans chapter 8, verse 18, For I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that will be revealed to us on that day. As we consider then and look at these rules of engagement for Christians, how are we doing in the world in which we're living in today? Paul's admonition to us through this letter is that we need to be living worthily of the gospel of Jesus Christ by keeping these rules of engagement, to be steadfast, to be united under one banner, the banner of Christ, to be brave about sharing our faith in this world, and bold as God gives us of his spirit the boldness to live for him. But be prepared that when we do it, we will suffer for Christ's sake to the saving of men's souls. May God give us the grace to so live by these rules of engagement that he has given to us in his word. Amen.